All right. Uh, welcome again. Welcome to the Elm City Vineyard on this, uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it beautiful, sunny. I mean, you've got to take it when you can get the sun, right? Beautiful, sunny, winter, but of course, wintry day in New Haven. Um, I, uh, I, I am so, I was, I was excited to hear about all that, um, all that God is doing um, in and through this church in this city. Uh, Hannah and I um, have really grown to, to love this city, to love New Haven. Um, it, now that, that took a little bit of doing, that took a little, that was a little bit of a process, but there's no doubt in our minds now, we love New Haven. And if you know us, you know that we love New Haven. Um, maybe if you don't love New Haven as much as we do, we try to persuade you that you should love New Haven as much as we do from time to time. But that said, all that said, all that love for this city, um, for gr- taken as granted, there's always been something, maybe, I want to call it, this will sound bad, but there's something maybe a little bit anxiety producing about this place. Now, doubtless, for, for me personally, now, doubtless that has something to do with the fact that um, New Haven was first, like, the place where school happened for me. And college can be an anxious time, and Yale in particular can scare just about anyone. In fact, I've known students who um, have gotten to the point where just, like, seeing New Haven from I-95 would start to, okay, so some people experience this, will start to, like, raise the blood pressure, and, like, this sort of cloud of anxiety begins to descend. But I... I don't think that it's just Yale, and I don't think it's just students who can feel a sort of weightiness in this place. Over the years of doing ministry and doing life here, I've seen it in others. Maybe, maybe it's the activist spirit in this town, the desire to do something of significance, for artists to create something of significance, to create something meaningful, for young people to discover who they truly are, and even more to the pressure to become those people, for, for activists to intervene before the crucial moment has passed. And those last two together, this sense that we've reached a pivotal moment in which we need to know ourselves truthfully and become who we were meant to be, Those two together create a special sort of anxiety that the world needs us to accomplish ourselves, to become the superheroes that we have to be, we think, the superheroes we need to become, and quickly. I think there's a reason, especially in this town, we're so drawn to these superhero movies. I don't think it's just Josh, though it's especially Josh. Um, But there's actually a pressure under, under which many in this city labor, And it adds a particularly local flavor to a national and increasingly global sense of anxiety and fear. Fear of those unlike us. Fear of those who stoke fear against those who are unlike us. Or those who stoke fear at least against those who are unlike them. Fear of nationalism. Fear of globalism. Fear of war. Fear of false peace, that is, fear of complacency. Fear of technology, technology, the concern that it'll leave us behind. Fear that we'll be out of a job or eventually as a species out of luck entirely. Fear about the climate and the future of our planet. Fear that we're not afraid enough about the future of our climate and our planet. Fear is everywhere we look. And yet we know, I think somehow instinctively we know, that the life of fear is not the life that we're meant for. 
And so we try to, to steel ourselves. We, we keep a stiff upper lip. We manage a modicum of courage or something that at least looks like courage. Or worse, we try to downplay or ignore the problems altogether, stick our heads in the sand, pretend it isn't so bad after all, at least give ourselves a pass on worrying about the problems of others. But this isn't the life that God has for us. And so during this next series, we want to lean into a different sort of life, a life in which we see the world truthfully, we see the problems around us as they truly are, and yet at the same time, we live free of fear. The foundation of such a life is love. Indeed, in the Bible, the antidote for fear is not courage, but rather love. And so we're simply calling this series, Love is Greater Than Fear. And, I, and I'm personally really excited about this series. I'm excited for what God will do in and through it because I think that there's something here that is not only near and dear to the heart of God, but also core to our particular call as a church. Our particular call to follow Jesus here in this city among an anxious people at a particularly anxious time. The ministry that God has given us is a ministry of love that casts out fear. A ministry of anti-anxiety. A ministry that brings peace. So I'm excited that over the next few weeks, um, we'll get a chance to see that more clearly, walk into it more deeply. And as we do that, as we begin uh, this afternoon, let's, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, Spirit of peace, Spirit of the living Christ who is present um, to us uh, in this place, would you open our minds and our ears to hear what you have to say to us, to see the things that you want to show us. Would you take these words that I've prepared and, and through them speak the particular word that you want to share with each of us? Amen. So this week, um, as, we, as we begin this series, we're starting right at the very beginning. We're actually starting with the first appearance of fear in the Bible. We're starting in Genesis, the Hebrew book of beginnings, and you've probably heard this story before, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And God provides this beautiful garden to, to call home and gives them just one rule. There's one tree from which they should not eat. You may freely eat, God says, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Fair enough, simple enough, but there's a serpent in the garden who suggests a willful misreading of God's rule so as to make that rule seem unreasonable. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the, God, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You, get, you catch that? You can eat from, literally, the words of God. You can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. Uh, the serpent says, is it true that God really said you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And she got that. Remember this. 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. I take it, and it's just, that's a subtle thing that gets added there, right? But I take it that the game is lost at this point. The trap is set. Once the serpent has incepted the idea that God is an unreasonable dictator with arbitrary rules, the serpent has already won the day. The table is set for the serpent to question God's goodness itself. And that's what he goes on and does. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not only is God unreasonable, the serpent says, God is selfish. God is malevolent. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was apparently silent through this whole process. Um, He let the woman take the lead, um, and, and he ate as well. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. For themselves. Now they had always been naked, but they hadn't been ashamed. This part is new. And then we finally see full-on fear show up. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. That's amazing. Right, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. What an astonishing opportunity to encounter God, right? And just think of that. What would that be like to hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the, at the time of the evening breeze? And yet, what this raises in them is not awe, um, not peace, not a response towards beauty, but fear, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The result of their shame is that they hide from the presence of God. And not just that, they hide among the good gifts that God had given them. Did you catch that? Where did they, where did they hide? They hid among the trees of the garden. And I take it that this is actually, this is actually a time-honored human strategy, <laughs> When we don't want to deal with God, we fascinate ourselves instead with God's good gifts. We lose ourselves in the things of this world. Food, drink, music, dance, sex, all good things. Good gifts from a God who loves us. But when we're on the run from God, we try to make these things into things that will hide us from the presence of God, even though, in fact, they are marked with the presence of God. And if we were seeing rightly, they would be precisely these instruments that, that, that mediate to us the presence of this loving God. Adam and Eve invented this move. They're hiding from God among the trees of the garden that God gave them. God is not deterred. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Here is the crux of the matter. This is the pattern of our lives. And note Before death, 
the first consequence of sin is fear. Before death, the first consequence of sin is fear. Fear is where it all starts. Once we're afraid, the rest of the cascade is inevitable. And this is the way it still works, to, works today. Sin generates fear. It is its primary product. With it, it produces its signature product, which is estrangement, a dissolution of relationship, um, alienation. Sin generates fear from which it produces alienation. And so this is the mark of sin, the destruction of relationship. And the easiest way to wreck a relationship is to poison it with fear. So sin generates fear, but fear also then becomes the fuel in sin's engine. This is what produces this runaway feedback loop. Sin generates fear, but then it also sustains itself on the fear that it produces. This is why in relationships marred by sin, we see fear on both sides. Fear motivates the sin of the perpetrator so often, and, and, it, and it produces fear in the victim which, if left unchecked, remakes the victim in the perpetrator's image, prompting a new round of sin and violence and fear. This is how sin and fear operate in the case of racism. The majority fear the minority, which motivates racial hatred and racial violence, explicit and implicit, literal and figurative, and as a result, the minority feel the major- fear the majority, And this fear can then produce an equal and opposite reaction, more racial hatred and racial violence, and the cycle continues. Sin and fear, too, operate in the case of of sexual exploitation. Lust produces in the perpetrator shame and guilt, forms of fear, even as it produces fear in those who are forced to come to know themselves as sexual prey. We go, I won't, we won't. But I, we could go on and multiply examples. Sin and fear go hand in hand. And so when we see fear operating, when we feel anxiety taking over a situation, when there's anxiety in the system, when our political leaders motivate us with fear, whether, as I said before, fear of those unlike us or fear of those who stoke fear of those unlike them, when the church can act only in response to what it sees as a threatening world, when we in the church offer less leadership than we do strategies to manage various anxieties, anxieties about race, about wealth, about gender, about sexual identity, about broader social respectability, about reputation, much of which ultimately is anxiety about power, When we look at our own lives as if we are constantly standing on the precipice of failure to accomplish all we were put on this earth to accomplish, a particularly hubristic form of fear, wherever we find fear operating, we should be on high alert. Sin is in operation. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that fear itself is always sin. A lot of fear comes from sin. Fear results from sin. But even then, plenty of that sort of fear is the result of other people's sin. So please, don't hear me saying that if you're ever afraid, you need to repent of your fear. There is fear of which we need to repent. Let that be clear too. But there is fear also from which we suffer, by which we are oppressed. 
And actually, all fear of which we need to repent is also fear by which we are oppressed. So whether or not you need to repent of your fear, you do need to be set free from it. Now, we've seen Adam and Eve's strategy for dealing with their fear. It's this simple paradigm. I was afraid and I hid myself. This is still a popular option these days. Even more popular these days is to try to assuage our fear through accumulation of power. In fear, we feel vulnerable, and so we naturally try to protect ourselves, hiding, building ourselves up enough that we can hide in plain sight. At times, this, can be, um, this could be appropriate. This could even be good if we're pursuing the right sort of power. But more often than not, our pursuit of this accumulation of power leads us back into a cycle of sin and fear. And this response makes sense, especially if, as we do so often in our culture, we think of fear as part and parcel of weakness. If fear is a symptom of weakness, then strength would be fear's antidote. Not just any strength, but a particular form of strength, a rigid strength, the strength of the protective, hardened outer shell, a strength that closes the self off from the world. And this sort of strength has ironic results. Because, you see, our racist, sexist, and xenophobic anxieties all stem from a sense that this sort of strength is under threat. We worry that our protective shell is being breached. And as a result, rather than set us free from fear, this strategy actually just deepens the cycle of fear and sin, sin and fear. The Bible, as we heard read during worship today, suggests a very different antidote for fear. That of love. John, First uh, John uh, 4.18 uh, says it simply, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Love casts out fear. Now make no mistake, love too in the process produces a sort of strength. But this is a sort of, this is strength of a very different type. This is a strength that rather than stealing oneself from the world comes from an openness to the world, an opening of the self that provides strength to enable us to continue to be open and to engage with the world. What sort of love, we might ask, could possibly do this? It's not just any sort of love that casts out fear. We could think about the ways that, that, that many sorts of love can, can do something like this. But to really, to really cast out fear entirely, First uh, John says it's perfect love. The love of God. The love of God. It's simple, but it really is transformative. The love of God can cast out fear and open to us an entirely new way of being, a new way of life. I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was on uh, the train on my way back um, from work. These days, uh, once a week, I travel to New Canaan, Connecticut, right on the New York State border to serve as the, the director of um, faith initiatives at uh, Grace Farms Foundation. It's amazing work. God has been so faithful leading me into it. Many in this room were a part of that leading and witness to God's goodness through it. 
I can't wait to share more with you about it uh, in the coming months and years, but it has introduced a new dynamic in my life. The commute. <laughs> Never had a commute before. <laughs> at least, not one that I couldn't, in, at least in theory, do on a bicycle. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago, on my very first day at Grace Farms, I had to stay a bit late, and so I didn't make it home in time to put Junia to bed. And so right around bedtime, my phone rang, and it was Junia's uncle Han, my brother-in-law, who was at home with her, going through the bedtime routine, and he called, and he said, Junia wanted to talk. She didn't just want to talk about anything. Junia wanted the prayer, the bedtime prayer. So right there, on the Metro North train to New Haven, I began to pray, Dear Jesus, please give Junia a good night's sleep, keep all the scary dreams away, and help her wake up in the morning happy and healthy and ready for a fun, fun day with you. Amen. That's the prayer. That's the one that we've prayed every night since she was two years old. It started sort of by accident, but it's become the prayer. But I take it that the prayer isn't the point. That's not where the magic is. At the beginning of this prayer, there's a preamble. Remember, Junia, God loves you, and we do too. I, th- I think that's the magic. I think that's it. That's the moment that makes it worth praying for your daughter over the phone with a train car full of quizzical people. <laughs> That's it. In that moment of intimacy, of closeness, of vulnerability, right there, tucked in her bed with all her defenses down, remember, Junia, God loves you. And we do, too. That's the foundation for a fear-free life. A sense that God loves us and that the key people in our lives do as well. And hopefully in our lives we've known long seasons where that foundation was there. Though I take it that there are seasons too when the assurance of God's love alone has to be enough to keep us going. And it can be. In those moments the foundation becomes God loves me. And while God's will is that I would experience that love also through my parents, my best friends, my children, or my spouse, for now God's love alone is enough. And that's the most dangerous thing about Adam and Eve's response in the garden. The most dangerous thing about our imitation of their response as well. I was afraid and I hid myself. The fear of Genesis 3 isn't just the first fear, the source of fear, but also something much more dangerous. This is fear of the source of freedom from fear. This is fear of the love that can cast out fear. If we give in to this sort of fear, we are left in a fear which itself results, uh, itself resists the antidote of fear. We might say that this is the original fear, the fear of the love that casts out our fear. This original fear, which follows immediately on the original sin, results from a faulty logic that insists that love and truth cannot coexist. The the logic is this, if I have sinned, if I have failed the one who loves me, if I have broken that relationship, then the truth of that betrayal is an existential threat to that love. 
We're giving faulty logic here. (laughs) We think to ourselves, God may have loved me once upon a time, but I have sinned against God. So either God cannot know that I have sinned or God will no longer love me. And so deception goes hand in hand with this sort of fear. The impulse is to keep love and truth apart. The friend, the lover cannot know the truth. This is the function of the leaves, this vain attempt at clothes, at coverings, to hide the truth, to veil reality, to keep the lover in the dark. The primordial fear is that who we truly are is unlovable. And so for the sake of love, we try to hide the truth, which is completely antithetical to love, because to be loved truly requires being truly known. So in hiding who we are, lest we be known as unlovely, we become just as we fear. As unknown, we are, in a sense, unlovable. We're not open to love. Of course, God is able to see. We can't avail ourselves before God. We can try. Believe me, we try. But we just can't pull it off. In fact, as God encounters Adam hiding, it is precisely in seeing him as one hiding himself that God sees Adam truly as he is. If Adam hadn't been hiding, right, it, wouldn't have, it would have been less obvious exactly what was going on with, with, with Adam. And this is how it works with us. In our attempt to hide ourselves from God, we are laid bare. Despite our efforts to the contrary, the truth finds its way to God. And against our expectations, truth and love can, in fact, coexist with this one. And we see this in Genesis. Even as God announces the consequences of sin, God also announces what the church has always taken to be the promise of God's work to rescue us from those very consequences. Speaking to the serpent, God says of Jesus, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In Christ, God will triumph over sin. And and, and God even provides new, this is weird, but this is how the extent to which God is willing to, to, to enter with us in, in, our, in, in the reality of our lives. God provides new and better clothes. God recognizes our need to veil ourselves and mysteriously supports Adam and Eve in that veiling, even while working to overcome the need for it. That's God coming and being, being with us, showing us that the truth of who we are cannot keep God at arm's length. It will not keep God at arm's length. In fact, um, our enmity uh, drives a God who loves us to come nearer yet to us. This is the good news of the gospel. The God who loves us overcomes even our fear of the one whose love casts out fear. God sees us and God draws near to us even or especially in those places where we feel unlovable. God sees us truly and loves us anyway. And that love provides the grounding for a way of life that is free of fear. Free of fear, if indeed we come to know ourselves fundamentally as beloved by God. God's God's work happens on God's end, but it takes us coming to know ourselves in in this peculiar sort of way, this way that runs against all of our instincts of fear and shame, to know ourselves as beloved of God, despite what we've done, before we do anything good. As I said at the beginning, um, fear has always been something on my mind for ECV. It was clear from the beginning that fear, um, fear would short-circuit everything that God was up to here. 
And so I used to talk about courage a lot in the early days of ECV. If you were around then, you might even recognize that exact, exact dramatic picture. That was the one. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think courage, I learned this from Josh, I don't think courage was really the main thing that God was doing in our midst. A certain sort of courage might have been the result, but the more powerful thing God was doing was communicating God's love. And because perfect love casts out fear, and because our context here in New Haven is so often one of looming anxiety, the most salient feature of God's love was that it was an antidote to fear. ECV, this is God's call to us as a church, our inheritance, I think, from those early days. We are to be a community able to look honestly at the problems of the world, the challenges of our lives, see them truthfully, and yet not be fearful, not be anxious. That's what God has for us, and that's also what God has for us to give out, the ministry of this church. From the very beginning, from the early days of the home group that eventually became this church, it was a ministry of anti-anxiety, a ministry of peace. I'll never forget the ways that Caleb or Kathy Maskell or Kathy or Andy Saperstein or Rick or Fran Love would look me in the eye in the face of something real, something looming, something that ought legitimately to cause be, be cause for concern. And they would look at, me, look at me in that moment and they would love me and they would say with full knowledge of the reality of the situation and in no way belittling it, they would say, if God is with us, if God is for us, if God loves us, where then is fear? I make them sound more eloquently. Often it didn't even involve words. It was all in the eyes. I would tell stories of, 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 of all of my very legitimate concerns and fears and anxieties, and there would just be uh, no taking on of that anxiety in response. It was in the eyes. And I, and I know those names don't mean um, anything to many of you, and they don't need to, but, but those eyes... And that assurance, that confidence in the love of God, not some sort of aloof pie-in-the-sky theological escapism, but a rootedness of the love of God that made, makes it possible to engage with the world as it truly is, as messed up as it is, as frightening as it is, and to engage without fear, without anxiety. That is it. That's what God has for us. That's who God has called us to be. And that's my great hope for us over the next four weeks of this series, that we would become the people who God has created us to be. Together, a people who know ourselves as beloved by God, a people able to serve our city and our world without fear. A people able to minister um, anti-anxiety, able to minister peace in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces. A people who know ourselves as beloved of God and who invite others to know themselves just this way. If we could be a people marked by a peace rooted in the love of God, 
think it would be a more profound testimony than the best preaching we could put together. If that's the people that we could be in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever we go, I think people would see, they would see something that they would eventually find as the mark of the presence of God. So let me ask you, just a few questions to think about. First, what part of your life is especially marked by fear? Maybe it's already come up as I've been preaching, maybe as we were running through some, some examples, you just instantly, oh, yes, this is the thing. Um, maybe it's something really, really uh, personal and particular to who, who you are. Where is your mark, where is your life especially marked by fear? Sort of fear that, um, to, that breaks relationship, that drives you to, to, uh, to walk away. Again, not supposed to be a sort of like guilt-inducing thing, but it's just an inventory. Like where, where, where is fear showing up for you? And what might, God, what might God show you in your life? Maybe your own sin. Maybe the result of the sin of, some, of, of someone else. Um, regardless, a place where God wants to set you free. Now, free, free from sin, or free from fear, that is. Second, where in your life are you tempted to hide from God? Where in your life are you tempted to hide? It's easy for us to imagine that there are parts of our lives that are sort of worthy uh, of showing to God and, and parts that are not. And I don't know about you, but there are parts of my life that are more in line with how Jesus wants to live my life and there are parts that are less. Uh, but what the question is, what are we doing with those areas where we know that there's this gap between how we live and how we ought to live? Are we trying to hide that from God? Are we saying, God, this is where I need you present most of all? Uh, right? God, this, this, this is where I, I, want, I want to live a life that looks like Jesus. I want to live a life that looks like the one that you've called me to. Um, so especially, Lord, would you be present to me in this struggle, uh, in, this, in, this, in this place that's difficult? That often is the opposite of our instinct. But if, we, if, but if we stepped back for a second and thought about who God really is, I think that's the way we ought to relate. God, would you especially be present to me? This is really, really hard. I'm stuck in a cycle here. I'm addicted. I'm stuck in a cycle here. I get angry when I don't mean to. I'm stuck in a cycle here. I look at pornography when I don't, when I know that that's not what I, what I want. Would you help me here? I'm stuck in cycles um, of, of prejudice, and I, and I see it in my life, and I don't know what to do. I'm stuck, I'm stuck in dynamics with my coworkers at work that I don't know how to get I'm stuck. Where are you stuck? Are you hiding that? Or are you saying, Lord, here's where I'm stuck. Would you come and be present, especially here? Finally, in what context in your life could you minister peace? I think this is, and I, I, let, let's make clear here, 
uh, uh, the first two things don't have to be fully worked out in every way in your life <laughs> before you ever minister peace. So the beautiful thing about God in our lives is that as God's doing something in our life, even before it's done, um, uh, God uh, can, can use us to give it away. So um, here, this is the question. How can you minister peace? What situation, now I'm thinking not just in your life, but what situation, what context out in your life is marked by anxiety? And in a way you say, ooh, okay, that's a place where we really need the presence of the love of God. Can I somehow minister that? Can I some, minister just means sort of be, be, be an intermediary. Can I, can I help bring peace, God's peace, to this situation? Can I, can I walk in my groundedness, in my belovedness of, by God in a way where I can bring some peace in this situation? I think God wants to work in and through us in exactly these ways. Why don't you go ahead and stand up if you're able? We're going to stand up. And uh, the worship team can come up, and uh, Patrick's going to come up in just, a, in just a minute and lead us into communion. Um, but before that happens, I, I just want to—I want to pray for us. And I think what we what we want to do is, um, I just—I just want to pray for um, for an experience of the love of God. Um. Uh, for, for some of you in this room, you've had this experience many, many times. Um, for others in this room, it's been a long time since you've really felt that sort of God speaking your name and, and telling you how much God loves you. For some of you, maybe you haven't experienced that before. Maybe the thought that God would love you is sort of strains, strains credibility um, in your imagination. I just, if, if, you're, if you're in a place where... Um, uh, I'm going to pray for all of us. But if you're in a place especially where you want to receive that, you might put your hands out as if you were going to receive a gift because I think this is what God has for us. I'm just going to pray. Um, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you communicate your love? God whom we know as love. Come and speak to us here. Where we're hiding from you, would you come and and smile upon us? Let us know that you see us, and would you draw near to us, even or especially in those places where we think you could not possibly come close. Come, Holy Spirit. Let your spirit of love, the spirit of, that, that makes peace, be present here in this place. Meet with us. Meet with us. Teach us more of your love. Brothers and sisters, the reason that we take communion together 
is because on the night before he was crucified, on the night of his arrest, Jesus had a meal with his disciples. And after the meal, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body. Eat this and do so in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he said, This is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this and do it in remembrance of me. And then Jesus said to these disciples that he loved, Every time that you do this, you will proclaim again the death of the Lord until he comes again. Because Jesus knew they were entering into the period of their greatest fears. That night, the next day, was going to be the realization of their worst fears. Watching their best friend and the one that loved them most be murdered. And yet, there was a promise that when we would do this, we would proclaim again the death of Jesus until he comes again. Because the disciples would see Jesus again. They would know that promise fulfilled. They would see the resurrected Christ. And they would know that they would see the resurrected Christ again. And in so doing, they would know for themselves, for real, perfect love casts out fear. So I want to invite our communion servers forward and we will just pray over this meal that we will share together. Lord Jesus, our fear, we confess it runs deep in us. There is so much that we are afraid of and things that we can't even fully admit to ourselves. Our fear is like this this roaring lion that prowls around looking for whoever it can devour. But Lord, you have loved us. You love us. And Lord, we ask now for more of that, just as Matt prayed, that you would fill us again with your love, that you would cast out a spirit of fear from us, Lord that you would send it far away from us. For we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption as children of God. Lord, you have loved us and we have feared even that. And Lord, you have loved us and we have fought against it. And you have loved us and we have run away and you have loved us and we have done wrong. And you love us and you love us and you love us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Make this meal into a proclamation again that you have died for us. And you will come again. And we will know for ourselves that perfect love casts out fear. In Jesus' name, amen.